Yo, what's up? This is Hal in Philly, and this is Tales of the Road Warriors, my podcast. Welcome to it. Today, you're in for quite a treat. I'm talking to Ben Vaughn, and if you're from the Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Delaware, tri-state area, and hello, New York, you too, you're probably familiar with him. He's been a fixture around these parts for a very long time, as a rock and roll star and as a DJ. Even outside of this area, listeners of NPR radio stations across the country can hear his remarkable, eclectic music on his show, The Many Moods of Ben Vaughn. Ben and I talked about music mostly, but a large portion of this conversation touched on his good friends and musical influences, Ken Queter and Jerry Blavitt, also known as the Geeter with the Heater, the Big Boss with the Hot Sauce. I'd go so far as to say this episode is a love letter from Ben Vaughn to the Delaware Valley. We talked for well over an hour, so after much debate with myself, I have decided for the sake of our short attention spans to make this a two-parter. I intentionally ended this show with a slight cliffhanger, like all good serials do. I hope you enjoy this very educational and entertaining conversation with Ben as much as I did. So let's not keep you waiting. Here's me, Hal and Philly, and Ben Vaughn, sharing a few anecdotes and some memorable Tales of the Road Warriors! Ben? This is me. I was concerned because we're having a heat wave here in Philly, and I usually talk into a condenser microphone, a nice AKG, but it picks up everything. So for today, I switched over to a cardioid so it wouldn't pick up my air conditioner. Oh, yeah, the, the wheezing air conditioner. Yeah, a lot of wheezing. <laughs> I know I know the phenomenon. <laughs> Got to turn the refrigerator off if you're recording at home. I mean, yeah, I'm always tracking down. Where is that hum? This is a guy who recorded in a Rambler, so he would know. Yeah, that one, outside noises were allowed for that one because it was a concept. So that was like probably the easiest record I did in, as far as that goes, you know. Yeah, I was watching it this morning. It's 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 great. When I was in my teens, I went to Corvettes on the boulevard and got a little Akai tape recorder. I think I bought two of oh, them. Oh yeah, I, I I had I had that tape recorder. I know exactly which one you're talking about, that little one, right? Yeah, it was like 12 bucks. I I, I saved up and got two when I that's how I first multi-tracked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me too. I, exact same thing. I, I I still remember the plastic cover on that thing, uh, which got lost after like a week. <laughs> so you know, but I'm I'm so stoked that you called, Ben. I'm like, I can't believe, you know, like you, I was driving and um, it just so happened that your interview with um, Jerry Blavitt came on, and I'm listening to you interview him, and you know, you have this, uh, you know, like this reverence for 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 Jerry, and I'm thinking. The more I find out about you and listen to you, it's like, I, I have that same kind of, uh, you know, you're, you call him a force of nature, and I think you're a force of nature. Oh, well, thanks. You know, the Gator, man, I am truly a fan. I mean, it's like unabashed. I, like, turned so many, I tried at least, you know, tried to turn so many people outside of the Delaware Valley onto the Gator because people, you know, out of a 90-mile radius, people have never heard of them. And so I've turned people on in California and, you know, all over the place. Uh, there, there's fans in Spain now because I'd send tapes of the Geeter and they're like, oh, my God, this is the greatest guy in the world. He is amazing. He's still at it, isn't he? 
still up at the oh, yeah. I just talked to him I just talked to him on the phone yesterday um, he's uh, is still hard to keep up with you know his energy his uh, he truly is a force of nature oh, I mean, he'll put a 20 year old kid to shame with his energy and he's still at the, I think plays at the Buck Hotel he books himself everywhere guy's amazing oh yeah he does like five or six nights a week well he did up until the covid stopped it but um on his website he posts his monthly calendar of dates and it, and you know you after just reading it makes you need you know you need to take a nap after just reading it it's like what <laughs> yeah <laughs> how's the covid like treating eight- by the way that's kind of put a damper on things huh well um you know well, i discovered one thing are, are we on the air yet, or are we? Yeah, I'm recording. Just, I said it. Oh, okay. Good, I accidentally good. Uh, d- talked for an hour with someone and wasn't recording, so I set my preferences to just start right in. Oh, that's good. That's smart. Oh wow, you lost an hour. I feel for you, man. Oh, I've and it was there. my cousin. Oh, family. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, you, I, I don't know if you know her name, Toby Lightman. Does that ring a bell? It does. It does. Toby's from um, New York City. And we share a cousin in common named Aaron Lightman, who Aaron was like uh, sort of like a Donovan back in the day. Really? Yeah, he sort of like had a stalled career and signed into a bad record deal. And they owned him lock, stock and barrel. So there was nothing he could produce that they didn't know. And he couldn't sell a hot dog on the streets of New York without them taking all the money. I guess that was common back then. I had a similar experience early in my career, actually, with my first manager. I wasn't allowed to uh, work under my own name for a while. It's amazing. It happened to Prince. It's not like it can't happen to anybody. Yeah, it happened to Billy Joel, I think. You know, there are these stories. And, you know, it was, it was a partnership that wasn't working for me anymore, and I, and I wanted to get out. And he said, no way. And uh, I had to perform. I, I used the name the Sir Benjamin Quintet. Like the Sir Douglas Quintet, right? Uh, well, for a while. I know you have a lot of influence by Sir Douglas, so that makes sense. The Sir, well, he's my number, yeah, he's he's like the uh, he's he's sort of like the Geeter to me as well. You know, like these guys that just you know, wow. Well, Sir Douglas all, is sort of like your musical influence, like uh, the Geeter is your your radio DJ. Yeah, influence. yeah, and it's really about the their passion for music is like obvious all the time. You know, and you know they're not in it for the money, because the, some of the things that they're doing are purely for the love of music. Because they don't make sense if you were trying to be a shrewd marketer. They're they're, they're like the you know really the worst at it because if they like a song, they're going to jump on it. And you know, Sir Doug was like a he was amazing because he was sort of like a human jukebox. I've you know I've seen I guess I saw him maybe thirty times. And really, I never saw this. Oh yeah, yeah, I'm a fanatic, you know. And hung out with him. I recorded with um, Augie Myers, his organ player. <clears throat> you know, I sought out Doug. Uh, who early played on. the uh, Who played the squeeze box? For me or for Sir Doug? Oh, I thought you shared that that guy. You had two different. Oh yeah, uh, we did. Yeah, yeah, Augie Myers. Augie Myers played uh, accordion and uh, Vox Continental organ, which is the Sir Doug sound. You know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, at first, I thought it was a Farfisa, but then I read online it was a Vox. Yeah, the ones with the, the ones with the black black keys and and the sharps and flats are white. It's a beautiful instrument. It's a red organ with uh, black keys. It's really cool looking. And Augie brought the original one down to the session, the one he used on "She's About a Mover." Great song. 
Yeah. <laughs> Are you familiar with Bob Malone by any chance? Speaking of accordion players? No, I don't know that name. Oh, you should write it down. I think you'd like this guy. I think he's going to step into the void left behind by um, uh, John, Dr. John. Really? He's got a lot of little wow. Dr. John and him, little Billy Preston. He play, he's currently playing keyboards with uh, John Fogarty's band. Oh, wow. And he does this wild accordion solo to open up uh, at my back door. Wow, I can hear that. Yeah, yeah. I think you'd enjoy it. <laughs> you know, my notes are like, um, researching you is like going down like many rabbit holes. So it's like a, <laughs> it's like a deck of cards in, 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 in my hand in no particular order. So if I go out of chronology, I apologize. Well, that sounds uh, completely uh, appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you're from Collingswood, New Jersey. Um, well, actually, I'm from Mount Ephraim. New Jersey, which is a a town that is right next to Camden, uh-huh. and is one square mile big, literally one square mile, five thousand people, and I spent a lot of my childhood just hopping on my bike and going into Camden and hanging out at the record stores and uh, and then you know taking a bus into Philly because Center City was so close. It's right. really interesting. Like I grew up in Jersey, but. I was closer to Center City than people who grew up in, in Northeast Philly. You yeah, know, that's like what I wanted to ask you about, how you ended up uh, in, in hanging out in Philly so much. Well, you could see the Philly skyline from my town, you know. Uh, it was always there, looming, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and so, of course, the, you know, the, the well, radio. Well, that brings came. me to what I want to ask you, okay? I, I, I left Philadelphia in 1977 to become a singing waiter in Santa Monica, huh. at, at 9th <laughs> and Wilshire. Wow. And, you know, I was going to be a rock star, and although I didn't become a rock star, the weather was nice, so I stayed for 28 years. But during that 28 years, that meant I missed, from 1977 all through the 80s, I missed the scene that was going on in Philly, which you, I guess, were a part of? I don't know if I've ever been part of anything. But uh, you, you bore witness to it, let's put it that way. Like the, I was around, uh, I was, yeah, I was, I was playing in clubs. And, uh, yeah, from 80, the Ben Vaughn combo started in 83. Right. And you knew, like, Alan Mann, Robert Hazard, Ken Queer, oh, yeah. of course. Oh, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Do you remember the Sweet Stave and Chain by any chance? Oh, yeah. I saw them. I saw them open for Cream at That's the Spectrum. That's who I saw? At the Spectrum? Yeah, 1968. Yeah. That was, yeah. My cousin, I was 15 years old, so my cousin, who was a little older, accompanied me to that concert. That was my very first concert wow so you were there too wow we're like the we're alumni yeah and for years <laughs> i can i compared every concert i ever saw to that one because that like just became the the bar for me well you know it's funny because um that's the i, I was only like i guess i was 13 at the time and uh, that was when i realized that i might end up being a record producer because i disapproved of the acoustics Huh. <laughs> <laughs> you know because i saw the four tops like a couple weeks before and they were it was impeccable right steel pier in, in the indoor theater and i'm like every lyric was audible the band everything was at the right volume you know and uh you know a couple weeks later i'm at the spectrum way up at the top you know the cheap seats terry reed remember terry reed i he sure came do on first bang bang and he's screaming his head off and the band's playing and everything and i turn to my friend and i go I don't know, man. This doesn't sound as good as the Four Tops. And he was like, "What are you talking about?" <laughs> <laughs> I said, "Well, I'm I'm just you know stating my opinion, you know." And he's like, "Just shut up, man, and 
smoke this, you know? <laughs> <laughs> right. And that was the first time I smoked weed in public. It was like, you know, wow, they're passing it around, and we're allowed to do this, and the cops aren't busting us? Wow. And you were 13? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I I was a late bloomer, but I didn't start. I didn't have my first joint until like uh, 19 or 20. I I really held off a long time. All my friends were doing it. it. That's good because, you know, it doesn't. Um, I, I, I discovered that marijuana did not mix with the teenage brain very well, you know? Right. You're still developing your brain and still developing your emotions and if you're high during that those hormonal shifts you know you're you're adding more confusion and potential uh self-consciousness really you know like if you're walking down the halls in high school and you're high you're certain everyone's looking at you (laughs) (laughs) where where if you're walking down the, the the hallway in high school without being high you're only guessing they might all be looking at you you know there's a difference the paranoia and the self-consciousness that comes with it is I, not I, good for I remember my brother turned me on to a hit of mescaline once, and I didn't know what it was going to do to me. And I had a blind date that night, which ended early. Oh, my God. That ended early, but I came walking in the house, and both my parents were sitting in front of the TV watching the 11 o'clock news. It was, and I, I, I knew, I was certain they knew. But they didn't. Yeah, yeah. I, my, my, my brain was already too, I was already high, I guess, you know, because I was so excited about stuff all the time, and I had such a curious mind. I mean, that's, you know, from the time I was a little kid, uh, you know, I was just curious about everything, and I, would, I had the energy to uh, seek out what I was curious about. So I was already all over the place. And, and, Were you taking and, uh, radios apart and putting them back together and stuff like that? I was doing stuff like that, yeah, you know, and mainly I was listening to the radio because my dad was a TV repairman, and um, he had this beat-up old radio down in the basement with tubes and everything, and I dragged it up to my room and had a short a short wave channel. So I was able to listen to the BBC and listen to Radio Luxembourg and stuff like that when I was like eight. Oh, that's you know? very cool. So I was up there in the dark flipping around listening to stuff and i would stay up all night um i would fall asleep in class every day because i i was up all night tuning things in on the radio and i would listen to wls in chicago and i would listen to the grand old opry on saturday nights um i was a fanatic you know and i just couldn't believe the mystery of the airwaves you know that this stuff this music and these announcers are just floating up there in space in the dark it was like it was an obsession for me you Did know? you happen to listen to um, Homer and Jethro or Flattened Scruggs? Did you get any of that chicken picking stuff? Well, I heard whoever the Opry had on, you know, um, you know, like it would be like Porter Wagner and then, uh, you know, Connie Smith or whoever. It was pretty, pretty incredible. And and there was also the Wheeling Jamboree out of um, Wheeling, West Virginia. Oh, yeah, I remember here. Yeah, I remember the name. I don't think I've ever. On WWVA, sometimes that would float in, but... I really liked WLS in Chicago because they had a different hit parade than we had in Philly. They had a lot of Midwestern hits by, you know, like the you know the Buckinghams and the Outsiders and bands like that. They had hits there that we never heard in Philly. So I was always kind of following, you know. Actually, I think Philly had some great music that the rest of the world should be jealous of. Oh, completely. What well, that Gator special that I did, Yeah, I think really... Uh, kind of drives that point home because some of the songs that we chose to play for that 
like Sally saying something by Billy Harner should have been a national hit, you know. Right. What it about? Wasn't. Do you remember the Kit Kats on uh, Jeans on the Boulevard? And they had that hit, uh, "Let's Get Lost on a Country Road." That record, that song, that recording to me is a, there's like an album's worth of ideas in one three minute song. That is a masterpiece. That record. No kidding. That's that record, and it's funny. I it was big. I met um, in the early '80s. I, I I met the DBs. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the DBs. They're no. um, like an alternative rock band. Um, Are they from Philly? No, they're from North Carolina. And uh, Peter Holsapple, who is the uh, one of the principal songwriters in that band, uh, we met like in you know, I guess it was the '83 or something. Within five minutes, we both realized that we were obsessed with the Kit Kats. <laughs> that song was real big in North Carolina. I could listen to it over and over again, <clears throat> and, and you know, I still can. There's something about that song. I never well, I can't figure out how all the they words. did it. You know, like when the banjo shows up, and then when the falsetto comes in, it's like that. That record, it really is like an album, or like maybe like a you know almost like a symphony in the sense that it has movements and sections. And uh, no matter how many times you listen to it, you're surprised by what comes next. That's a that's a, that's a real accomplishment, you know. Yeah, I have to <laughs> I have to agree, and. Uh, just Walk Away, Renee, is always like a, a, a song that's haunted me through my life. I don't know why. That's a good one. If you're going to be haunted, <laughs> that's a good song. <laughs> <laughs> it always just reminded me of the, like, the girl that I had a crush on. You know, like I walked the long way around to school to pass her house. <laughs> yeah. But getting back to, uh, you know, it was Ken Queter who told me I should call you, you know, write you. And uh, he credits you for saving his life. So do, do you have any insight into that? <laughs> I have no idea what that means. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, the only thing I can think of is that I took him seriously as a folk performer when no one else did. Uh huh. You, you know, like because he was doing the Secret Kids and he had bands and he was you know chasing a record deal with management and all that kind of stuff and um right you know i saw him play at a coffee house once by himself and i was like oh my god this guy's like a, a folky and i introduced him, myself to him back then this would have been back in the, probably the 70s and uh i said you need to make a folk record you know the rock thing is great and everything but you're such a great communicator with just your guitar you know you really need to do that some time and, and he was like i'm not ready i'm not ready but thanks you know <laughs> and then eventually i guess it was like in the mid 80s 85 or something like that we made a record together called kitchen folk actually it was a cassette which is beautiful he released it as a cassette only <laughs> which i i uh, at the time i was like that's not smart kenny i don't know how many people are going to buy a cassette only release but now i'm, I'm <laughs> just uh, he was a visionary find a cassette some, to play it on even yeah, I know. It's it was just uh it was it was just an odd choice. Uh yeah, it was called Kitchen Folk and we um I don't I, but I don't think I don't I I can't imagine how I saved his life. Um but well, um Well, you know he 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 had a <clears throat> he was drinking and doing a lot of drugs and I, and I think you uh he <clears throat> I think it was you we was talking about. He credits you for kind of getting him out of getting his head out of that. Well, it's possible because I, I was quite a drinker and I quit in order to have my career. I realized I couldn't do both. I was 
I was a great drinker, and I, and and I was and I was and I w- would rather be a great you know songwriter. <laughs> so I figured I had to get rid of. I couldn't be great at both. So uh, you know, I you know, uh, well, a lot of us come to that realization on our own and just kind of snap out of it. And some of us need help, whether it's a friend or, or to join AA or whatever. And I guess I guess you were there for Kenny at the time when he when he needed somebody to like take his head out of the toilet. Maybe, yeah. I mean. Um, I, I don't. I don't recall um, doing anything heroic, uh, but well, I'm you know how Kenny that. is. He kind of like it's dramatic about things. So yeah, he saved my life. <laughs> saved my life. <laughs> you got to talk to Ben. He saved my life. He's the guy. <laughs> so just out of curiosity, I'll switch gears again here. Did you did you ever shop for musical instruments or gear at Cintiolis? Oh, Benny. Oh, yeah. You know, Benny, Benny passed away be- this year. Yeah, yeah. I was really sad to hear that because Benny Cintioli, uh, Philadelphia without Benny Cintioli is a, well, it's a less funny place, that's for sure. <laughs> Benny was a just Character. incredible. was so funny. He was just so funny. Do, do you have any, do you recall any uh, Cintioli well, stories, anything spe- special or just in general just enjoyed going there to get your stuff i enjoyed going there but my accordion player gus cordovox uh, who plays with me in the ben von quintet which is my philly band um gus has been playing with me since well for 35 years now uh or, or more actually in 1983 whatever whatever when we don't need to do the math it's just going to make us feel no tired. <laughs> don't you, you dare know. do the math no math allowed <laughs> i you know put it this way you know we've been playing together for a while Let's, let's just leave it right there. And um, he would always take his accordion to get fixed because Gus Zoppi was this guy who worked out of Cynthia Cint- always doing repairs, I think, and he taught accordion, too. He was a very well-known guy, and he made his own accordions, I believe. Right. What was his name? Gus? Gus Zoppi, Z-O-P-P-I. Gus Zoppi. It does sound familiar. No, he, no, he, was, he was Benny's best friend. And and they their uh, they and their wives would vacation together every year. They were such close friends. So I know my accordion player Gus uh, knew Benny much better than I did. I I was only an occasional guy who went in there, but I went in there for the entertainment. I was usually with somebody who was buying something, you know. When I was uh, a teenager, I don't know, maybe twelve to fifteen, I took guitar lessons at Cintiolis, and my huh. guitar teacher's name was Lenny Apple. And I tried to locate him when I came back to Philly from California, and I couldn't find him anywhere. And I mentioned this to my cousin Franny this morning, in fact, and she said, you know, somebody started a Cintioli's memorial page on Facebook. So I'm thinking maybe I'll post there and see see if anybody else took lessons from Lenny, find out what happened to him. That's a great name, Lenny Apple. Lenny Apple, yeah. Try to find a Lenny Apple, you won't, at least not him. Wow. Yeah, there's some people, somehow, they are not available on the Internet. Um, every now and then, there's like someone who has escaped the claws. Well, you know what it is? that The generation just ahead of us, like the, in their 70s and 80s, kind of missed the Internet. So they didn't even have a, face, uh, a MySpace page, let alone Facebook. Right, right. So, because he's my, I have a cousin, uh, I had a cousin, Louis Goldstein. He was a sax player, played the whole wedding circus circuit and he and lenny were good friends 
So I figure they're both about that age that they would have just never found their way online mm-hmm. to begin with, which is kind it's of amazing. A shame. The the the, the um, reunions that happen online, like I'm friends with people from like high school that I you know for thirty years I was not friends with them, and now I'm friends with them again. It's bizarre. I know because when our parents were growing up, like they died never having seen the friends the people they went to high school with ever again. Yeah, now we see what they're having for lunch. (laughs) In real time, on Zoom. Yeah, that's a really nice jello mold, you know? There's a reason why we drifted apart, I think. (laughs) I know, right? (laughs) Oh, yeah. I had this thought this morning. I was watching... I I was watching the the Ben Vaughn Quintet on on YouTube, your uh, video of I dig your wig, and uh, oh, you know yeah. you were performing it live, and then I just had this kind of rare question just pop into my head. Have you ever had a panic attack while touring or, or going to a gig where you for worried that you forgot to pack the hubcap from the Rambler? because it seems to me as a rare percussion instrument that sound is essential to the song and it's akin to like a philharmonic orchestra for getting their triangle well you know i just had an experience with that the quintet did a tour of spain back in um october and uh kind of the last traveling you know the (laughs) it's like the last time you're able to do that sort of thing you know bv quintet's last hurrah yeah, yeah, and we did we did like six shows in Spain, and one of them was this huge festival, and it was like it was like the reason why we were there, you know, it was a big, very big deal, and we're on stage, and we're doing the intro to "I Dig Your Wig" right up to where, you know, I pick up the hubcap and the drummer hits it for the intro, and I'm looking around the stage, the crowd's going nuts, you know. We're working them and working them. And everything's going. Everything's going perfect. The whole show is going over, and the place is packed, and people are going nuts. And I look around, and I can't find the hubcap. And I turn around to my drummer, and I go, "Where's the hubcap?" And he goes, "I left it at the hotel." Oh man! So I was like, right. You did have a so moment. I, at that very moment, I was like, "Is the show over, or do I continue?" <laughs> <laughs> like I'm not sure if I know how to move past. <laughs> Sometimes I'm amazed by my own insight, Ben. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it is. Uh, it's the linchpin uh, of the live show. Yeah, yeah. And I also um, begs a question. Serious. Is there a difference between uh, Tex-Mex and Zydeco? Because they sound very similar to me. Oh, there's a big difference. Uh, Zydeco is a French uh, Canadian influence. The um, Zydeco is is Louisiana. But isn't it similar and instrumentation and feel? It's sort of, sort of like a fun, I don't know. It, 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 they're, they're similar, definitely. Uh, they're similar, but there is no Mexican influence in Zydeco whatsoever. Okay. Uh, Zydeco is like Cajun and uh, really like uh, like black louisiana what do you call someone who's from louisiana louisianian is that a word <laughs> it is now <laughs> <laughs> anyway a, a black louisianian singing in french uh and the whole creole cajun um you know mix-up of uh of culture 
is, uh, you know, it's, it's a... So they both have a, a strong flavor, but different spices. Yeah, Tex-Mex is um, the German immigrants bringing the accordion and the polka to Texas, and the Mexican locals hearing it and picking it up and changing it. That's what Tex-Mex is. Uh, okay, you know what? I guess what might might have got me <clears throat> thinking that is because you you have a song called "Pièce de Résistance," which is French. Yes. And, and uh, but you uh, you refer to your style more as Tex-Mex, so I guess that's where I got confused. I thought, are they the same or? You know, oh well, that song—that song would not be Tex-Mex. That's uh, a, my fake French song. You know, a fake I, 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 I just str- you know string out uh, every French phrase that we use in America and turned it into a lyric. Is that it's really funny because that song gets a really big laugh here in America because obviously I'm just—it's all non sequiturs, you know, and I'm and, sure. And it's a, you know, it's me pretending to be singing. Yeah, it's like somebody meaningful. doing Italian and going pizza, mozzarella, just saying words. Yeah, yeah, know. yeah. So it's like you know, you know, coup d'état, you know, c'est la vie, je ne sais quoi. You know, all these phrases that we use here in America. Um, reportage. Bon, c'est bon. Know. Okay. And uh, but in France, they uh, they didn't like that song. They were like, "It's the stupidest song we ever heard. It doesn't make any. The lyrics make no sense, and your pronunciations are horrible." And I said, "Yeah, I know. That's the idea." And they're like, "But why would you want to do that?" And I go, "Because it's funny." No, it is not. Yeah, no, their, their sense of humor is <laughs> terrible, especially there. That's why they think of us as the ugly Americans because the, we go to a restaurant and what was well, that's actually the, the original name of that song was the Ugly American. Actually, <laughs> there you was, go. Um, yeah, I mean that—that that is a celebration of my ignorance. That song, which I thought was, I think, is funny, you know. But over there, the—the the irony of that, the sarcasm, uh, doesn't translate. No, not at all. They don't zip right over the heads. They're just like that is a really bad song, sung like you're uh, making terribly. fun of us, Monsieur. <laughs> yeah, they, <laughs> you're just proving that you are an idiot yourself. Yeah, and um, <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, I know that's the idea. But why would you want to do that? Uh, never mind. Yeah, <laughs> never mind. So, okay, now I'm going to get into something really, like, took me by surprise because this morning I just, I just came across this. You and Kim Fowley. Oh, I knew Kim. Yeah, I knew Kim. Yeah. How did that happen? Because, like, I have a Kim Fowley story, and to this day I still don't know how or why he appeared in my life. But, but you actually did a project with him. Well, my relationship with Kim Fowley goes back to when I was in high school um, I found a record of his called I'm Bad and um, came out in 1971 or 72 and on the back cover it said who are you Kim Fowley wants to know write me a letter tell me who you are you know so I wrote him a letter you know I was like 16 17 and I wrote him a letter and I told him who I was and that I was uh, writing some songs and would like to have a career in music sometime. And he wrote me back and said, send me your picture. So I sent him a picture and he goes, come to Hollywood, I can make you a star. How much did he ask for? He didn't ask for anything. Because he spent two hours on the phone with me trying to convince me to give him $2,000 for him to be my publicist. 
Oh, and yeah, at the time, yeah. Ben, I didn't even have a CD out, and I didn't know he, where he even saw me play. I mean, I was playing a lot, but but I'm like, I have no idea well, that's how. The Kim, that that's the Kim Valley hustle. He never even heard my music. Right. And he told and he told me he could make me a star. And I said, yeah. you haven't heard my music. And he goes, I'm sure it's fine. <laughs> yeah, it sounds just like him. I mean, that's what he does. He's just like, come on out. I'll make you a star. <laughs> that's, yeah. I, I don't but know I'm why intrigued. he even like hung on the phone with me for two hours trying to convince me. To, I mean, I wasn't buying it. And I knew very well who he was. But there was just, he was, well, I found he, him he, fascinating, he was, he was, fun, and scary. <laughs> Well, he was an incredible guy because uh, he had, you know, obviously a very high IQ. You know, uh, you sensed that the minute you started talking to him. He had like a photographic memory. He was actually, you know, a, a criminologist um, or, or no, like a professional witness or whatever you call like those. A forensic uh, scientist? No, no, no. A professional, oh, criminal witness or something like that. I forget. Uh, but he made money on the side doing that, and he, and he sort of had ESP, too. He was really, like, in possession of an incredible brain. But for some reason, he was addicted to the small-time hustle of the record business starting back in Hollywood in the 50s, you know, with small labels and uh, promoting records, putting out records, producing records, uh, cr trying to create stars. Sure. That was well, he did, he, I mean, he did have some modicum of success with the you know with the runaways that was huge i used to see him hanging out on the uh, in sunset strip with rodney bingenheimer all the time whenever i was driving through hollywood just he was always there oh yeah yeah he was like you know um he was around and uh, i was intrigued with him and uh we stayed in contact it was really funny because um so I said, no, I'm not coming out to Hollywood. You know, I'm like 17. I'm in New Jersey. And I wasn't trusting that there was some kind of bad hustle waiting for me when I landed. So, I, you know, I was smart enough to go, nah, you know, I'm not hopping on a bus and coming out to Hollywood right now. So then how and, and when did it materialize? Were you actually... Well, what happened is I got a record, you know, eventually, you know, 10 years later, I got a record deal. And I was on tour, and I was playing a club lingerie in Hollywood. And this beautiful young girl, stylishly dressed, comes up and hands me a note. and says, this is from Kim Fowley. And I was <laughs> like, what? We hadn't been in communication for, like, you know, probably 15 years. And it says, I was right about you. You do have talent. But if you did what I had told you, you would be twice as famous right now. <laughs> <laughs> come see me before you leave town let's have lunch <laughs> that is so funny I, it, was too, it was irresistible I had to and then from that point on I had a little bit of leverage with him you know because I had I had a record deal and I was on tour and I was doing things that were legitimate so he then treated me like an equal instead of uh, a mark right you know? yeah that I'm but, sure uh, made a huge difference in, in the king of the hustle you know? Yeah. But now, whatever happened with Kings of Saturday Night? Because I was listening to some <clears throat> of the tracks this morning. There's some good stuff there. Yeah, we cut that record. I, I recorded the tracks. I was still living in Jersey at the time. I cut the tracks and sent them out to him, and he improvised those lyrics on, on top and, you know, uh, sent it back to me, and I mixed it. It came out on a label in the States called Sector 2, which kind of came and went. And 
it did well in Europe. It was um, released on several labels over there, and it did well. Which, you know, which you would think it would. It's 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 an eccentric record that Europeans would. Yeah, probably it's definitely got his stamp on it and on the sound there. But it's but you and him, I I find that there are similarities between you and him that. <laughs> Maybe no, no, uh, no, hold on now. Hold on now. <laughs> no, I mean in a good way. In in your eclectic <laughs> taste, in, in your approach to just experimentation with with sound. You know. Well, he was he, an influence. You know, like he was um, involved in a lot of really cool stuff. You know, he was involved in you know doo-wop records in the 50s and early 60s right. he was involved in uh, and i love that stuff too and i know you do i mean you're what's your well i don't know if Dwayne eddie's really doo-wop but but you like you, you like a certain sound like a 50 sound between the doo-wop and the twang oh yeah well uh, you know i my the first record i ever owned was a Dwayne eddie record uh, my uncle gave it to me when i was six it was a brand new record at the time uh, my uncle worked at rca in Camden. As a matter of fact, everyone in my family worked at RCA in Camden, uh, which is probably why I spent so much time with the radio and records, because there weren't any instruments to pick up. I kind of came to actually playing musical instruments. You know, I started playing drums when I was 12, but I had to go over to a friend's house who had a drum kit, <laughs> because uh, a drum kit was not going to be allowed in my household. My dad was really uh, pretty down on the idea of uh, rock and of rock and roll. I always know, wonder how drummers' parents like, like <laughs> let their exactly. kids get, get to the point where... Exactly, who are these parents? Because they, they're like saints, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Your kid decides, I'm going to be a, like, you see, like, a, I don't know, an 18-year-old person playing drums, and you realize, well, okay, well, this has obviously been going on since he was probably 13 or 14, which means he was living with his parents, which means his parents were okay with that? Yeah, well, it means he was <laughs> banging on the dinner table while... While they were eating, he had to be. Even yeah, I did that. Yeah. And the uh, the I, the very idea of that in my household, like, wow, no way would that ever fly. You know, even if I was a straight A student, that would still not be allowed. I was always envious of kids whose parents allowed them to rehearse in their house and encouraged them and brought snacks to them and stuff. You know. <laughs> yeah, I was fortunate. I, I, I had those parents. I, there was no drummer in my family. But when I started my first garage band, the Mad Organization, which was because we were all Mad Magazine readers. <laughs> but we rehearsed in our in my basement. My parents would be like, "What was that one? I like that one. That was the wow, hill." You're lucky. Yeah, you're lucky. <laughs> that was the opposite of the way I grew up. Uh, I wasn't even allowed to play guitar or even you know play music because my grades were bad. You know, I was purposely a juvenile delinquent. I was. Um, attracted to that and became that and which meant my grades went down and my dad said you're not allowed to have a guitar unless your grades go up and I did not get my grades up so oh no wait that's it so how did Ben become a rock star if his dad wouldn't let him have a guitar did he ever get his grades up did he have to go to summer school or is there an even cooler coming of age story in store no pun intended, for you in part two. Well, you're just going to have to wait until next week for the conclusion of my conversation with Ben Vaughn here on Tales of the Road Warriors. In the meantime, please join the conversation 
Go to www.talesoftheroadwarriors.com slash ben hyphen vaughn hyphen part hyphen one and leave a comment. What was your first concert? Did it change your life? Are you a fan of Ben's show, The Many Moods of Ben Vaughn? Did that change your life? Remember to listen, share, and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. You can also help support Tales of the Road Warriors while you're on the website in a couple of ways. You can click on the PayHal link and donate any amount through PayPal. You can purchase an official Tales of the Road Warriors coffee mug available through Zazzle. You'll see a photo of it on every page. Just click on the link and get yourself one. There's also an I'm going for a drive travel mug. Speaking of which, I just filled mine up with coffee. And you know what that means? I'm going for a drive. (laughs) 